Well, good morning and thank you for the welcome and the invitation to be with you again in Sainfield. I'm reminded of the story of the young man who was interested in preparing for the Lord's work and he was being interviewed by a, a panel of senior pastors. And in the course of the interview, he was able to tell them he was preaching here and he was preaching there and he was preaching yonder that his diary was full of engagements. And there was an old man on the panel and he looked over his glasses and he says, Young man, you're busy preaching here, yonder and everywhere. Let me ask you a question. Do they ever ask you back? <laughs> it's lovely to be asked back and it's good to be here this morning. Turning to the letter to the Hebrews, please. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And we're going to come into the chapter at verse... Uh, 23. Hebrews chapter 9, verse uh, 23, and this is the word of the Lord. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Then turning back a page or two to Hebrews chapter 7, and to verse 25. Wherefore he is able also to save to the uttermost all that come unto him, unto God by him, since he ever liveth to make intercession for them. This is the word of God, and we know that God will bless to our hearts the reading of his own word. Let's bow in just a brief word of prayer as we come to the Word of God this morning. Father, we thank you for your Word. And as we come to it this morning, we pray that you will teach us what we do not know, that you will give us what we do not have, and help us not only to hear your word, but to heed your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. I wonder if you were to meet a Christian brother or sister who was going through a very difficult time, being sorely tested and tried, what is the one thing that you would want to say to them? Well, the people 
to whom this Hebrew letter was written were going through a very difficult time. They had experienced their first share of trouble and trial and tragedy and tears. And they were wondering, what's it all about? In fact, they were considering leaving Jesus and going back to Judaism. And so the writer writes this letter to them. There is one theme that is running through the length and breadth of the letter to these tried and troubled Christians. One repeated truth that the writer wants his sorely tried, despairing and spiritually debilitated brothers and sisters in Christ to grasp. And it's this. The supreme preeminence and superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. From one perspective and another, he says, consider this and get hold of this. Get hold of the preeminent and superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Especially the perfect effectiveness of his once and for all sacrifice for sin. The effectiveness of his high priestly ministry at the Father's right hand for his chosen and redeemed people. Now when you read through the Bible, and in particular some of Paul's epistles, there are verses, there are words that repeat themselves again and again, and they open the door to our understanding as to what the content of the letter or the book is all about. And that's true in relation to this letter to the Hebrews. There are a number of key words that come to us again and again in this New Testament letter. And one of the key words is the word better. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have in chapter 7 and verse 19 a better hope. In chapter 7 and verse 22, we have a better covenant. In chapter 10 and 34, we have better possessions. In chapter 11 and verse 16, we're heading to a better country. In chapter 11 and verse 35, we have a better life. And in chapter 9 and verse 23, in Christ, we have a better sacrifice. He wants these weary and worn people, troubled and tried and tempted and tearful, to see that in Jesus Christ, everything is better. That in the Lord Jesus Christ, the shadow is replaced by substance. The type is replaced by reality. And the promise is replaced by fulfillment. And what Old Testament sacrifices could not accomplish and were never intended to accomplish, Jesus Christ himself has accomplished in his once and for all sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. We read these words, once and for all at the end of the ages, he has appeared uh, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Open your Bibles, please, in Hebrews chapter 9, and you will have noticed in this ninth chapter, the writer focuses on the three appearances of the Lord Jesus. In verse 26, Jesus has appeared. In verse 24, he now appears. In verse 28, 
he will yet appear. And each of these appearances emphasizes the transcendent superiority of the Lord Jesus and the great need of the believer in Christ to hold on to him and not to turn back. The old hymn puts it like this, O pilgrim, bound for the heavenly land, never lose sight of Jesus. And if you turn over to the final chapter in Hebrews chapter 13, in verse 22, we note how this letter is described. We read these words, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. And the word exhortation can be translated comfort. It's the same word that is associated with the word paraclete, which is used to describe the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. You see, this Hebrew letter is a paraclete letter. And its message is simply, Behold the glory, the grace, and the greatness of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the great comforter of his people. Behold the glory of your great Savior. Here is the good shepherd. Here is the great shepherd. Here is the gracious shepherd who cares for the people of God. And in this New Testament letter, we are shown how he does it, how he does that caring in order to minister to them in their pressing need. And the way to meet that need is to consider Christ. You see, these three appearances have much to teach us about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, they teach us how to deal with worry, which affects us from time to time. And if we're honest, we worry. We shouldn't, but we do. Worry is like a rocking chair, says someone. It'll keep you busy, but it gets you nowhere. And I want to suggest this morning that you and I worry about three things. You say this morning, I wish it was only three things. We worry about three things. We worry about the past. We worry about the present. And we worry about the future. And all your worry this morning can be brought into these three categories. Many people in today's world are defined by one writer as being all stressed up and nowhere to go. All stressed up and nowhere to go. And the antidote to worry is to consider him. Hebrews 12 and 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This Hebrew letter is all about the person and work of the Lord Jesus. The writer to the Hebrews is saying to you and to me this morning, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And I say that this morning for at least three reasons. I say first of all, because the Christian life commences with a look. 
Look unto me and be ye saved, says the prophet Isaiah. For I am God and there is no other. There's life for a look this morning at the crucified one. The reason why you're not a child of God, the reason why you're not a Christian, the reason why you are not in Christ this morning because you're looking in every direction but the right direction. You're maybe looking within. You're maybe looking without. You're looking at others instead of looking to the Christ of God. The Christian life begins with a look. Look unto me and be ye saved. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But the Christian life continues with a look. The writer in Hebrews 12 tells us we're to run with patience, we're to run with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author, the founder, the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. Don't be saying those lovely words, run the straight race through God's good grace. How are you running this morning? Maybe you're being distracted by things that don't really matter. Maybe it's time you took your eyes of brethren and sisters in the Lord and continued to focus them on Christ. Because the Christian life not only commences with a look, the Christian life continues with a look. Look ever to Jesus and he will carry you through. The Christian life not only commences with a look and continues with a look, the Christian life is completed with a look. This morning we are looking for that blessed hope. And what is that blessed hope? Nothing less than the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Christian life commences with a look and continues with a look and is completed with a look. And here in Hebrews chapter 9, we've recorded for us the three appearances of our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 26, he has appeared. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. To offer in himself the one perfect sacrifice from sin. You see, to go back from Jesus, to turn away from one perfect sacrifice for sin is a tragedy. The hymn writer puts it so well when he says, There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Jesus Christ is not one Savior amongst many Saviors. He's the only Savior. And I say that this morning because I believe that we need to sound that message again and again and again. If you speak in some company and say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, you will cause no offense. They can live with that. 
But if you say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come unto the Father except through him, you will cause offense. That's where the rubber hits the road. That's where the cross offends. Jesus is the only Savior. And the salvation that is found in him is found in him alone. It's found not in what we can do, but rather in what Christ has done. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. Thy beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these are red. With joy shall I lift up my head. Have you ever sung those lovely words? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Oh, what a Savior that he died for me. If I was preaching this morning in an Elam Pentecostal church, they would shout, Amen, hallelujah. But I'm in a Baptist church, and I understand perfectly. He has appeared. He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Secondly, he will appear. Verse 28. So Christ, being offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He wants his readers to know that Jesus Christ is coming again. But he wants them to know for whom he is coming, not for those who have abandoned him, but for those who are eagerly awaiting his coming. One day their burdens will be gone. Sin, struggles, and sorrows will be no more. And how we need to comfort ourselves with this truth. But we need to challenge ourselves also and live our lives in the light of this unshakable truth that Jesus is coming again. One day the trumpet will sound for his coming. One day the skies with his glory will shine. Wonderful day my beloved one's bringing. Glorious Savior, this Jesus is mine. He's the coming one this morning. The Bible declares it. There are 70 references to repentance in the New Testament, 20 references to baptism, 6 references to the Lord's Supper. 318 references to the coming again of our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus. He's coming again because history, or the Bible, declares it. He's coming again because history demands it. You see, for many, history is full of confusion, going around in circles. But we know this morning that history is his story. And it will climax in the return of Jesus Christ who spoke these lovely words to his troubled disciples. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't we need to listen to that in these days? What's troubling your heart this morning? I know this. After over 50 years 
in the pastoral ministry. You know, looking at me, he couldn't be 50 years. I started when I was wearing short trousers, but that's another story. But I know this this morning. Behind a smiling face, there can be an aching heart. I know people have an outgoing personality. They're bubbly. And you come to the conclusion, you know, they have no care, they have no worry, they have no trouble. You couldn't be far mistaken. History this morning tells us that that is not true. And Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is coming again. The Bible declares it. History demands it. And the Christian's experience confirms it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 and 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead and has become the first fruits of them that sleep. He has become the guarantor. First fruits was a, first fruits was a harvest term. They brought in the sheaf of corn. They waved it before the Lord. And it was the guarantee that the rest of the harvest was going to be gathered in. Jesus Christ is the first fruits of them that sleep. Because he has been raised to dead and lives in the power of an endless life, we who know and love him shall be raised also to be with him forever. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. You see, this word salvation, as we read it in Hebrews 9 and 28, needs to be understood in its total expression in the New Testament. story is told of a young Salvation Army girl who was given out some leaflets. She was given out the war cry, their uh, uh, brochure. And this man came along, and he seemed to be a, a man of high order, and as she handed him the leaflet to him, she said, Sir, are you saved? You happen to be a bishop. That's a good question to ask any bishop or anybody. And he took a step back and looked down and he said, Now, dear, what do you mean? Am I saved? Am I being saved? Or shall I be saved? Now, he was being a wee bit provocative. But he was expressing his understanding of the word salvation. For salvation is all about having been saved, being saved, and ultimately being saved. What do I mean that? Well, we have been delivered from the penalty of sin. The key word is the word justification. No condemnation, now I dread Jesus, and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne to claim the crown through Christ my own. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. Every day we're being saved from the power of sin. The key word is the word sanctification. The Holy Spirit lives within the life of every believer. And his sanctifying power enables us to overcome sin as we yield to him 
and live in the fullness of his blessing. We have been delivered, we are being delivered, and we shall be delivered. Delivered from the penalty of sin, justification. Delivered from the power of sin, sanctification. Delivered from the very presence of sin, glorification. Some golden daybreak. Jesus will come. Sin and sorrow will be over. We'll sin and sigh no more. But I want you to notice this morning that in between these two appearances, we read these words. In verse 24, For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are figures or copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He has appeared. He will appear. He is appearing. And the question is this. What has our Lord Jesus been doing over these past, over 2,000 years since his ascension? Has he simply been idly passing his time just basking in the glory of his Father? Well, the writer answers the question by telling us something about the present ministry of our Lord Jesus. And that's why I read this morning from Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. What is our Lord Jesus doing in heaven this morning as we are meeting here in this morning service? What is our Lord Jesus Christ doing? He is interceding. Unceasingly, unendingly before God for all whom the Father has given to him. But what does that mean? What does that mean for him to be an intercessor at the right hand of the Father? When the question is asked, and I'm sure it's been asked by someone in your company, what are we dependent on for heaven? Well, we respond by saying Jesus' blood and righteousness. I remember as a young Christian, I was brought up in the Shankill Church where I'm now seeking to serve the Lord in an interim way. I used to hear a brother rise at the Lord's table. I can still see him. I can still hear his voice. Upon a life. I did not live. Upon a death, I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. I didn't fully appreciate all that that meant then. But I did as the years go by. You see, my life, your life this morning as a believer, and you sing about it, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But what about the prayers of Jesus in heaven? Hebrews 7 and 25, he is able to see it since he always lives to make intercession, saved by the prayers of the risen ascended and throne. What is it? What is the content of his prayer? Who is he interceding for? How would you understand it? Well, Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 and 34. He says, Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for his people. 
How are we to appreciate and appropriate the heavenly, unceasingly interceding ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we uh, picture the Lord Jesus pleading before his Father, asking him to bless us? Well, I don't think we should see our ascendant, exalted Lord asking the Father to bless us. Again and again, the Lord Jesus told his disciples of his and their Father's love for him. We read these words in John 16, 26, the Father himself loves you. I think we need to see his intercession as his presence, his very presence at the right hand of his Father. It's not vocal, uh, but I, I believe it's his presence. His risen, sin-fanquishing, sin-atoning, Satan-conquering presence at the Father's right hand contains every conceivable blessing that his people could ever ask or ever need. Does not the apostle in the opening chapter of his letter to the Ephesians remind you and I who are the Lord's that God in Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus? I believe that our Savior's presence, our Savior's nail-pierced hands and feet are his intercession. The Father looks on his Son and sees the atoning glory of his Son and sees a life and a death that accomplished everything that was good for his blood-bought people. He sees his Son and he sees his redeemed people in his Son. Turn your eyes upon Jesus this morning. For in Christ we lack nothing and in Christ we have everything. Christ has obtained eternal good the eternal good for all who have put their faith and trust in him. I love the words of that great hymn, In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my soul. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love. What depths of peace, when fears are stilled and striving cease. My comforter, my all and all, here in the love of Christ I stand. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. What is the particular content of his intercession? What did our Lord's dying on the cross accomplish? What exactly did our Lord Jesus accomplish when he gave himself on the cross as a ransom for sinners? He accomplished all that was needed to satisfy the righteous demands of a holy God. My time is gone. Let me leave these thoughts with you this morning. The high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus is recorded in John 17. This is the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. But here is the Lord's Prayer. The shadow of the cross is beginning to penetrate the human soul of our Savior. 
He has poured out his life and now he's about to pour his life and death. And as the shadow of the cross begins to consume his soul, he lifts up his eyes and heart to his Father in heaven. And he prays for at least two things. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. And the key word is the word keep. Jesus Christ knew in a way that no one else ever knew that there was an unseen enemy who was ever present out to consume and corrupt. This was the one who was bold enough to confront our Lord and tempt him to deviate from doing the Father's will in the wilderness. Do you remember what he said to Simon? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired, demanded to have you, that he may sift you as we, but I have prayed for you, that your faith will not waver, that it may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Someone said that when, Jesus, when we become children of God, God becomes our Father, Jesus Christ our friend, and the devil our foe. It's not easy to be a follower of this rejected Savior because we're in the Lord's sight. We're the objects of the evil seduction of Satan and his wicked host. The evil one goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He himself is transformed into an angel of light. And the great devourer and deceiver is out to get us. As you move out into your world this week, into your place of business, into your schools, into your university, as you move into the circle of friends that your, your daily employment takes you into, the great devour and deceiver is out to get you. But Jesus is praying for you. And he's keeping you. And then he says this. He prays that not only will they be kept from the evil one, but they will be sanctified in the truth. Because your word is truth. The word sanctify means to be set apart, to live unto God, and to love him with all our hearts, with all our strength, with all our soul, with all our mind, and our neighbors as ourselves. How can we do that? We can't do it ourselves. We can only do it as we allow the sanctifying power of the word of God to have effect in our lives. Vance Havner makes a comment on David's word in Psalm 119 when he says, Your word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. Your word, the best book. In my heart, the best place. For the best reason that I might not sin against you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus this morning. He has appeared. He will appear. And he is appearing. Never, never lose sight of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we take these moments of quietness and stillness We pray that we'll not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. 
We pray that the good seed of your word might fall on ground prepared to receive it, to bring forth fruit that shall be to the honor and to the praise of your great and glorious name. We thank you for him who has appeared, for him who will yet appear, and for him who is now appearing. May we never lose sight of our Savior, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Standing to sing 100, sorry, 345, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me has been made known.